Hello and welcome to another episode of Shattered Lives Reach Ireland's Crime Co- Podcast for the Irish Daily Star and Irish Mirror. I'm Crime and Defence Editor Mick O'Toole. Normally Paul Healy would interrupt me now and say that he's the crime correspondent for both papers, but Paul's not here, he's on his holiday as we told you last week, so I'm really delighted to have press-ganged uh, one of the news editors in Reach to act as co-host for the next couple of weeks for our episodes that we have here, and this one is The Week in Crime. So without any further delay, I'm delighted to introduce my, my news editor, one of my news editors in Reach, Owen Murphy. Hello, Owen. Good morning, Mick, and how are, how are you? I'm Grant, and I'm really delighted you're joining us. So you're one of the news editors for both newspapers. I am indeed. Now, I know sort of what that does. Can you just tell people what what you do and what your job is? Yeah, so our job would be to try to compile all of the stories that everybody puts together. So we would put together a list. Uh, Journalists like yourself would come to us and say we have X stories and we have Y stories. And then we would compile all of these various news stories that that people have, put them all into into a list and then draw up a plan for the newspaper. That's it in in a very abridged version. And you seem like quite an intelligent man. Why are you throwing it all away by going on the desk? What, what's the fascination with being a news editor? No, but it's a, it's a fascinating role. You get to oversee. You get to oversee everything, and you get to see how it all comes together, and and uh, you, you get a good insight into how the paper develops and all that. I, I so I, I I've I've been a journalist for thirty years. I've done the news desk twice, and it is um, it's sort of like Father Dougal doing the funeral. So I'm a bit of a disaster when it comes to coordination and stuff. I I realised my strength a long, long time ago was not what I would call admin or directing others. It's going out and getting stories. But I suppose that's the beauty of journalism, that it's a broad church and you can do your thing and, you know, People like me can be grunts on the ground and stuff. Yeah, well, it's all kind of, it's all, we, we all contribute in our own way to putting together a newspaper. Like everybody has a role. We have news editors, we have reporters, we have journalists, we have photographers, we have layout people. Like everybody has a role. And unless we all work together, there's no papers to put together. This is true. And, but it would be fair to say, judging from my conversations and Paul, Paul's conversations with it, you would have a very strong interest in crime anyway. I have. I've always had a huge interest in crime. Yeah. The last several years, I've had a big interest in crime. Yeah. Um, I read an awful lot of crime books and then I go over to England to these various different crime conferences. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of Crime Con, but these are these crime conferences. There's some of them held in London and some of them held in Glasgow. And you've all of these uh, experts in crime, be they forensics or psychiatrists or whatever, and they all come together and they give you an insight into various different crimes over there so that's what I love going over to see yeah oh jeez didn't know that that's very interesting yeah. jeez, I might have to go lo- I might have to go along with oh, you do, yeah absolutely right shall we get cracking absolutely okay so I suppose the biggest story of the week so this is, as I said is, is a look back in the, the in the week in crime so I think really the biggest story of the week has been the the, the demise of Ian Bailey yeah oh there's no denying that it was an absolutely massive story like Ian Bailey has dominated the news for the past 27 or so years. I suppose the the fascinating thing about Ian Bailey always was that his initial role in connection with the murder of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier was as, as a journalist. Like, sometimes people forget... Ian Bailey was a very noted journalist over in the UK. He came over to live in West Cork and his first... Um, in his, in his, he claims at least, his first uh, involvement in this case was actually as a journalist. He was the first journalist on the scene of the crime. 
Yeah, I remember there was a lady, uh, Helen Callanan, who was at the time was news editor for the Sunday Tribune. And then she, she, she got out of journalism and went in to become a, a diplomat in the Department of Foreign Affairs. And I remember she gave evidence in, I think it was in the, li- the, the, the libel trial back in the day about Bailey contacting the Sunday Tribune with details about the murder. Yeah. So yes, so he would have been, I suppose, he probably would have been regarded as maybe a stringer, a stringer somebody yeah. who profiles a, a bit of copy. He wouldn't have had a staff job and he probably wouldn't have been that regular. So he would just, any bits and bobs about anything in, in West Cork. And I suppose he was quite a bohemian person, so he would have known quite a lot of people. So yeah, he did. But then, very quickly, he became something much more than a journalist. He became the suspect. And I think it's safe to say... I mean, yeah, after his death, he died on Sunday, just for people who don't know, he died on Sunday out walking in Bantry in West Cork. He, died of, uh, he had a massive heart attack. Passers-by tried to save his life and performed CPR and then he was taken to hospital, but it, he died at the scene, basically. So that was it. It was a massive story. But he uh, he really did become the story. And for the last 27 years, he had been, I would consider, and Garda sources, I think, would say this, he really was the only suspect, the only prime suspect yeah. for this murder. Yeah. But I was always fascinated as to how he evolved from initially being a reporter to then becoming a suspect. Like, if you look at it in the early days, the early days of the incident, he was reporting on it. He was, he was feeding stories and all of that. And why did he become... Why did he evolve from being the journalist to the suspect? Was it because he had too too much insight into what happened? I think so. And I think people started, it's like anything in an awful lot of uh, investigations, people will go to the guards and they'll say, listen, this fella's dodgy. So I think it was his proximity to the area, what he knew, he was was at the scene, you know, when the, the area was being sealed off and just people were uneasy about it. And there are various things. We know, for example that he had cuts and scratches around the same time of the murder. It later emerged that he he left his house, I think about 10 o'clock the night of the murder and got back at about 9am okay. the next morning. And he had cuts and bruises and people started to have suspicions. And I think that's one of the, the main points that it wasn't just guards going, I don't like this fella. People went to the guards and said, Ian Bailey's a fella you want to look at. And they started to build up a picture about it. Before we go any further, and I was just chatting to you off air about this, we're going to be talking about a not an awful lot about Ian Bailey. Let's talk a bit about Sophie Toscantaplanti. Yeah. She is the victim here. Let let's not forget this. So she's a thirty eight year old. She was from France, very well known producer and filmmaker in France. And this house and school, a skull in West Cork, was her haven. She used to go there every Christmas and various times through the year. In two thousand and eight, some of us obtained the post mortem that was carried out on her. And and just a bit of a trigger warning that is quite grim but I think we should really tell people how, the death that she suffered so I, I I have the story that I wrote here and I don't know if you know this one but she suffered more than 60 individual injuries oh and obviously she was, she was beaten to death she had a broken jaw fractured skull bruising to her back and a broken hand and John Harbison Professor John Harbison who was the state pathologist at the time said that the hand injuries he believed were caused by her defending herself. So she literally fought for her life. But it, there were also, you know, things like part of her gum, her lower gum, her lip, had become detached because of the violence that was meted out against her. And we do know that she was beaten to death with a blunt, blunt instrument, probably a, a brick, a, a bit of stone. So really, and one thing that always I always remembered reading the postmortem, she was wearing long johns and she tried to escape and her long johns got caught in the barbed wire and they 
they really, really stretched out to a long degree, you know, because there was sort of, there was a bit of elasticity in them. So she ran for her life. She fought for her life. And whoever did it brutally murdered her. And I often think in this, you know, we know that there's, look, we're all guilty of it. There's lots of stories about Ian Bailey. There have been two really, really big documentaries, one on Sky, one on Netflix, within the last couple of years about the whole thing. But I'm really conscious that this is really about the murder of a woman and it's the unsolved murder yeah, of a woman. Yeah. And obviously, Bailey's dying means that he'll never be charged with it. So, yeah. look, it is what it is, yeah. I suppose. I was always fascinated when I, I've been down there a couple of times to the, the scene of the crime and the scene of the house. And the first thing that strikes you when you go down there is just how rural it is. Like, I travel all over Ireland and I've been all over Ireland. I'm here in County Roscommon at the moment. But where the murder happened is the most extraordinarily re- remote and rural place, two or more outside school. You're traveling for ages to get there. And then you would ask the neighbours where the house was and all that. Now, some of the neighbours would be reluctant to tell you that they get fed up with what they call murder tourists uh, looking to have a look at where the incident happened. But I remember eventually finding my way down to the house. And it is very sad when you get down to it. You know, you get to this uh, gate and then you have a crucifix on your right hand side, uh, which I think says Sophie on it. And then you have the house up the top. And it's the most extraordinarily rural, remote place that you would have to have a lot of local knowledge to get there. And you'd have to have a lo- lot of local knowledge uh, to know there was somebody living there. And is that not a key point that really, from an investigative point of view, the odds are that whoever carried it this, out this murder would have had local knowledge? In other words, oh, yeah. we've all we've all heard the rumours about, you know, somebody being paid as a hitman coming from France or coming from abroad. You know, I I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to find it. You you had great difficulty in finding mm-hmm. it down there. So does that not indicate that really it was someone who was local or had very strong local knowledge? Oh, definitely. There's no denying that because you, you, you would really need to know the area to, to find it. So um, I'd say it was either a local person or someone with very clear local knowledge. So did you... No, I, I must confess I haven't because I think it's yeah. a bit of a bus man's holiday. Have you watched the two documentaries? I have indeed, yeah. Okay, What did you make of them? Well, I thought they were very informative. Like, my uh, interest in this came later. Um, Like, I really developed a fascination with this story back around those two, the one Netflix and one Sky documentary. And they were very informative, I suppose, in just giving me an overview to it. And that's when I started developing a big interest in it. I rang up Ian Bailey and I said, Ian, uh, will you do an interview? And initially he did a phone interview with me and then he agreed to, to meet me then. I think it was December 2021 and I went down. And I met him and I met him in Glengariff at the time. I think he was homeless at the time, but he was waiting to get a to get a property. And the first thing that would strike you about Ian Bailey is just how quirky he was. Like we all hear about that he was a bit eccentric. He was a bit quirky and all that, but he definitely was very quirky. He'd be sitting with him outside the bar in Glengariff and he'd be talking to everybody as they come in and making comments to them all and everything. But he was a good laugh. He was a good character. And he used to kind of regale you with stories of Fleet Street when he was a journalist back in you know, 30 years ago in Fleet Street and how things were and all that. And there was always good crack with him. See, and he, yes, and here's the issue. Um, for years, Ian Bailey was a very difficult man to talk to. Mm-hmm. I can remember trying to contact him repeatedly and he would hang up the phone. So that was at the height of him being a suspect and really being in the media glare. And he was really, really uh, negative towards the media. That's no problem. That happens. 
But a couple of years ago, like just as you were saying, one, he changed and he really, I think he really started to play on his notoriety and I think he started to enjoy the role of being a bet noir. Do you think he did? Oh, he did. He definitely did. Like he, he, I think his solicitor, Frank Buttimer, said it during the week that he became, instead of being reactive to stories, he was proactive. He'd be ringing you about around the times of the anniversary. Do you want to do a piece? Do you want to do a piece? And he, he did definitely cra- crave the limelight of it. Yeah, and I, I, you know, he'd follow, I'm sure he followed you, he followed me on Twitter, he followed, I set up, you know, what, yeah. what do we call it, TikTok and he'd follow you and you know, all that sort of stuff. And I just, I, I thought he was reveling in it a bit too much. And look, I know he was good crack, but we've got to remember, he was a violent thug who was extremely violent. We know he was extremely violent to women. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And I wouldn't condone what he did at all, like in terms of Mm. uh, whatever about his innocence or guilt in terms of the murder of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier, he certainly was a violent man. Um. Do you, th- uh, having watched the shows, okay, because look, when you're a crime reporter, you talk to people and you go, oh, he did it, he definitely did it, we just can't get the proof or whatever. What was your view of his guilt after watching the two documentaries? Uh, after watching the two documentaries, you see, it's one of those things that people want to be binary with this and they want to say he's either guilty or he's either innocent. And like, I don't know whether he was guilty and I don't know whether he was innocent. Um, like, if you look at it, you say he was twice arrested, as you know, he was twice arrested. I think that was kind of the early stages of 1997 mm-hmm. and the few months after it. The file went off to the DPP on both occasions. The DPP came back and said, you don't have enough evidence to charge him. So it was interesting how that wasn't enough to to kind of allay people's concerns that this was the murderer, that, you know, he went through the, the legal system in Ireland. It didn't get any further than charge. As to whether or not I believe he was guilty or not, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I honestly don't. Um, but I think a lot of people think he's guilty because there's nobody else in the frame. And I don't know mm. if there's really a good reason to just say someone is guilty because there's no other suspect. Um, yeah, yeah. So say even things like some of the evidence was he would have allegedly confessed to the crime. I was looking at some of the statements that he made and I put it this way. I think it would be a very strong defence that he could say, I was taking the piss. Everybody was calling me a murderer. So I decided to take the piss and go along with it. Talking to a young child or I bite, yeah, I biced your brains out, which is a horrible thing to say, but you know, that sort of thing. I think if that went forward to a jury, you know, the jury would be well within the rights to take the defence view he was joking and or that he'd perhaps he'd become maybe a pastiche yeah. of the bogeyman. Do, do you know what I'm saying by that? Yeah. He was sort of playing up to it. So now we do know that there was a, a cold case review into it and we did a story a few days after his death that obviously he can't be charged with it but the, the cold case review is going to continue and what we understand is that the guards are again going to send a file to the Director of Public Prosecutions. The way it works... Guards do the investigating file, goes to the DPP. The DPP looks at it and decides, is there a charge or is there not a charge? So my understanding is that there will be a, another file sent to the DPP and the guards would be hopeful that the, um, that the attitude of the DPP may have changed in relation to circumstantial evidence. Previously, people would have thought, ah, circumstantial, because there was no physical evidence yeah. to link Billy to this, but there, there is circumstantial evidence including these alleged confessions and the cuts and, you know, and not being in the house with them. It's a picture. So the DPP's attitude seems to have changed. And I'm going to mention two big cases. Firstly, the Mr. Moonlight case from a couple of years ago, and then the Graham Dwyer case. And they were both circumstantial cases. Now, with Dwyer, there was phone data evidence. We know that. But there is a view now that the DPP is more 
welcoming or more more amenable to putting cases forward based on circumstantial evidence. So the view amongst guards mm-hmm. might would be that perhaps the DPP will look at the fresh evidence, whatever it might be, the new picture, and go, do you know what? I think that there would have been enough evidence here to sustain a charge. It's up to the jury. So I'm going to say if this man were alive, I would have charged him. And that would be the case closed because that has happened in a few, you know, historical clerical sex abuse cases. Priests have died out while they're being investigated. And that would normally be the end of it. The DPP has gone to the family and said, look, based on the evidence we have, I would have charged this man. Yeah. So there is a bit of glimmer there that there might be a sort of yeah. case closed. Because as you know, murder cases are never closed yeah. until there's conviction. It's interesting, like when it comes to circumstantial evidence, like circumstantial evidence is sometimes, uh, you know, very strong in terms of trying to convict somebody. But you do need a lot of pieces of circumstantial <laughs> evidence. You know, it's not like you just need a confession or you just need marks on his hands or you just need no alibi. There has to be an awful lot of parts to circumstantial evidence to to portray a picture is that picture really big enough for Ian Bailey like I know we have confessions number one what have we got? Well, we the alleged confessions, which he says, alleged confessions, which he says were dark humour, um, and that's credible enough in terms of anybody who's met Ian Bailey. He is the sort of man who would be making kind of um, cracking jokes about um, saying he was the murderer when he wasn't the murderer, and kind of just saying he was repeating other people's claims and all that. Then the second part is the marks on his hands. So, what do you make of the marks on his hands? Is that uh, very significant? I, I think it is. I think it's compelling because I know that he said he got a killing chicken, chicken turkeys before Christmas, didn't he? But I was reading that investigators tried to replicate those injuries by killing turkeys and they couldn't. So look, that is one. It's it's basically, it's a strand. There are several strands. The more strands that you can put together to form a rope, the better. So there would have to be things like him not being at the house at the time, him having been introduced to uh, Mr. Plante when he said he hadn't met her, you know, all the alleged confessions, him, you, you know that he burned clothing mm-hmm. in in his in his back garden a few days after the murder and neighbours attested that it was him. You know, ver- various things like that. So you'd have to, and we, and again, I always say this, we never really see the full picture until it's put to court. Guards have secret information, that's what they do. But it's all about putting all these strands together and it has to be really, really big rope. Now, I don't know. Look, you know, you and I are journalists, we're not cops. So we can't say we, we, he did it or he didn't because we were not investigators and that's it. And we, we shouldn't be investigators. We're, we're journalists and nothing more. I think it would have been very difficult to, to, to get it past the jury, I have yeah. to say. But it's about, do they have enough strands, as I said, to form a really, really tight and strong and heavy rope that could bear the weight of this prosecution? If you look at Graham Dwyer, there was a lot of strands, even if he didn't have the... The phone data evidence, you had all the text messages and they all worked out that they were his, you know, say about coming fourth or fifth in uh, flying model aircraft competitions, having a baby, the name of the kid, pay cuts, all that sort of stuff that built a picture. I don't think you would have that same level, but it's up up to the DPP. But I think you might have the DPP coming and saying, based on this, I would be happy to sustain a prosecution. Now, the other thing, which is really interesting, is... I remember doing a story about this a year ago. I mentioned that, or a couple of years ago, that uh, she'd been beaten to death with a, it was, it was a heavy rock or a stone. Now that stone, I can remember, it was done for DNA a couple of years ago and there was nothing in it. But I note in the, the Senate Maloney in the Indo had a story about a new technique in America which has helped solve previous unsolved cases over there where rocks and stones have been used. It, it's about uh, getting the poor out of the pores from the stones. 
So that expert is hopeful and he said he'd happily do it. So you never know, there might be advances in DNA. There are advances in DNA all the time. What you couldn't find five years ago, you might find in a year. So look, we'll just have to see what happens with the, the cold case review. Yeah, of course, the other thing, of course, people would say is whenever we say that he has never been charged with a murder in Ireland, he's never been convicted in Ireland. He has been convicted in his absence in a French trial and he was sentenced to 25 years in jail. Like a lot of people say that was a farce of a trial, that it only that it lasted a week and it was just about reading mm. evidence into it and everybody says it was a farce. Do you know what do you think of that French trial back in 2019? I've always written about this. I find it extremely troubling. You, in Ireland, you can be convicted of committing a, a crime abroad, particularly in relation to what you would call sex tourists, say they go to Thailand to abuse children. You can, there is legislation that you can be uh, done for committing a, a crime abroad while you're living in Ireland. I think this is slightly different. The crime was in Ireland. The DPP twice directed no uh, charging in Ireland and there was no offence committed in, in, in France. And I find it very troubling. I did. I always found it very troubling that if the Irish authorities say no charge, the French can go, ah, we're not happy with that. We're going to have our own trial in France. He's not going to attend. It's going to be a week and he's goosed. I, I found that fundamentally undemocratic and very, very troubling. Yeah, there was some sort of Napoleonic law, some sort of historic law that she is a French citizen. She was murdered in Ireland so they can hold a trial in France. It's very unusual, isn't it? Yeah, I, look, it's unusual, but I, I, the Irish authorities are in charge of this investigation. They ruled that there was not enough evidence to sustain a prosecution twice, not once, but twice. So I I personally find it found it very troubling that they decided, well, we're going to do it ourselves. Yeah. Do you not think it was, I, I look, I, it just didn't sit right with me at all. No, well, it definitely didn't sit right with me, especially when I read all the reports of how the trial was carried out in France. Like ultimately, he was sentenced to 25 years in jail, but he never served that sentence. Like the, the French, as you know, made an effort to extradite him and they made a couple of efforts to extradite him. Mm -hmm. and not surprisingly, our court said we're not extraditing him. Um, we're not agreeing for him to be extradited to France to serve uh, a jail sentence for 25 years when he wasn't even charged or convicted here in Ireland so yeah I, I just look at just I, I I didn't like it at all yeah. um just just one last thing in this he was cremated as we know he's cremated cremated in private and last night I spoke to Jean-Pierre Gazo who is Sophie's uncle he's been one of the main campaigners for Sophie for the last 27 years would speak to him and we just wanted to see what were his views and the privacy of it. And he came up with a very, I thought he came up with a very interesting comment. He said, look, he's a human being. It's his own life and it's his death. Let him rest in peace. But he said his view about why it was in private was that the Irish people did not respect him because they didn't trust him and they believed that he was a liar. And they, they basically, they turned their backs on him. So he said, that's why, in his view, Bailey was committed in private because he had been shunned by Irish society. I wonder, is that the case? Yeah, there's something very sad about it when you think about it overall. You think of this, this man, regardless of his innocence or guilt of a crime, to be cremated on his own with nobody there. Uh, like it is, it is a terribly sort of sad end for him, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it is. I mean, we knew that he'd been ill. We'd, we, we, 
we, we had done stories in the last couple of months. Didn't he have a heart attack a few months he ago? He did. He had, and we thought he yeah, was dead. Yeah, he had three heart attacks, I think it was, last year. I spoke to him, mm. kind of, I did an interview with him, I think it was last September, and it was very evident when I spoke to him that this was a man with slurred speech and very speaking very, very slowly. And then I spoke to him then again, kind of around December, so that's about a month ago, and we were talking about doing another interview, and I said I'd get back to him and all that. But it was very evident that... Uh, it, it was very two things were very evident first of all his decline in his health was very evident and the second thing that was very clear was the fact that there was nothing really they could do with him uh, that he knew he was um, he knew he was on the way out and he one of his hopes was that the cold case would exonerate him um, and I think he probably realized that uh, he would be dead before the cold case concluded its work and that was um that was probably the most notable thing. I remember the funniest story, actually, I remember about Ian Bailey was when I was down with him in Glengariff. I mentioned being with him in Glengariff in um, December 2021. And uh, I bought his book of poetry and he, he was selling his book of poetry and he was always trying to sell his books. He'd be going to Bantry in the stalls and he'd be going to Glengariff trying to get everybody to buy his poetry. So I said I better buy his book of poetry. And um, I remember he addressed it to my mother and uh, happy Christmas, Siobhan. That's my mother's name. And uh, and then he signed it, Ian Bailey, and then he put his phone number on it. So this was always a big joke in our in our house that Christmas when my mother was given this present for Christmas of a book of poetry for me and Bailey with his, his phone number on it as well. Tell me, were they any good, the poems? I didn't get very far with them. They weren't my type of poetry anyway. No, it wasn't my type of poetry at all. OK, well, look, that's Ian Bailey. Shall we move on? Absolutely. Let's talk about a, a story we've been looking at the last week or so about the, the, that really terrible incident about the bomb in the hostel, the DePaul mm -hmm. hostel on Little Britain Street in central Dublin. Yeah, what happened there? So it was a bit weird. Uh, it, it was it was last Thursday. Yeah, it was last Thursday and we just heard about this explosion about half three and do you automatically think, right, gas heater, right? And people did say that on, on RTE. Look, it is, it happens. So I... I uh, I remember that night I was talking to somebody. I was just trying to find out who it was. And I said, uh, how can I say this? Basically, I spoke to that person and that person said, no, nah, you're completely barking up the wrong tree. It was not a gas heater. And they said, there was no gas in the in the place. It was electricity, electric heating. I said, well, well what was it if it wasn't a gas explosion? Because we all, well, all convinced it was a gas explosion. And he goes, well, you know, what, what do you think it was? And I said, not a bomb. And he said, well, of course. And he said he believed it was a pipe bomb. So uh, we, we did the story. So essentially, they've been investigating the death of this man. Now, it was a massive bomb. Really, really, really big. And I'll give you an indicator. We, As I said, some people thought it may have been a, a heat and gas canister that he had modified trying to heat himself up. But there was enough heat and it wasn't. It was under his bed. Essentially, it was so powerful that it blew his head off. He was decapitated by this. So even speaking to military sources about this, for such, for an explosion of that size, it needs to be quite substantial. It can't just be a pop. To cause such fatal damage, like that, it needs to be really big. So it was a pipe bomb and there was homemade explosives on it. So the guards have been investigating this and what they've established is a couple of things. Firstly, the man has, he's, a, he's a man called Igor Dimitrov. Now, he was on a Lithuanian passport, but they think he might be Russian. They're still trying to contact members of his family. He's been here for about eight years and sometimes... You know, Russians would travel in Lithuanian or other passports. So they're still trying to get to the bottom of that. But we do know he had serious mental health problems. Two years ago, he tried to take his own life with a chainsaw. That didn't work, obviously, oh thankfully. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty grim in its own right. So the belief would be, and I think they're more or less certain about this, that he built the bomb 
He built it in the room where he was staying. It took him several weeks, if not more, perhaps a month or two. He detonated it on purpose and it was effectively uh, him taking his own life. So he died by suicide. That's the strongest belief. Now that is, it's very depressing, but it's also quite bizarre that someone would, just, would the belief would be that someone would take their own life by blowing up a bomb in a yeah. place like that. Yeah, and it could have blown up the whole building, I suppose. It was lucky nobody else was injured. You're, you're 100% right, Owen. And I think there were more than 20 people in the accommodation at the time. It's a very a big hostel, very popular. A lot of people were in and out of it. And there were also staff as well. So we are very lucky that there were not more people killed. The way it was explained to me is it was big enough to bring down the building if effectively it was really really big it depends where explosions go so i think we're very lucky that there were not more people killed but i just i just wanted to raise that that it's very troubling about this person's mental health uh and he did and you know we do know that he had had various crises before but i've certainly never heard of someone taking their own life with an explosion but that's what that's the what the, that's the, the line of inquiry that Guardia are following yeah. and would you need some training to put together a bomb like that like you would have to have a good bit of knowledge no, I asked this and the person said, look, this, these bombs, you can find out how to make them on Google. Really? <coughs> now, we do know that he was in, he, I think he had military experience abroad, so he, whether it was Lithuania or Russia. So he would have had a certain level of training, but I don't think he was a special forces fellow or whatever. But the guidance I got was that you can, if you look hard enough, you can find out how to make a bomb like this on the internet. And where does Which the is garden, terrible. Yeah, and where does the guard investigation go now then? Well, look, they're preparing a file for the coroner. So there's no other persons involved, but there's a couple of things they want to know. You know, was he involved with anybody? Just say the theory about suicide is wrong. Was he selling it? Was he was he storing it? I, I, I think they're happy that he, that he did make it himself and he wasn't storing it for anybody. But they do have to investigate this because it is very troubling that someone in Ireland can make a bomb like this and it can be so fatal. Yeah, yeah. You've been covering a lot over the last week as well about the, the incident in Blanchardstown on Christmas Eve. The fallout from that is still continuing. Obviously, two two lives were lost as a result of that. Yeah, Tristan Sherry, we know that he died at the scene after shooting a man called Jason Hennessy Sr., who's a 48-year-old father and grandfather. So um, we're sort of limited what we can say about Tristan Sherry because I've, I've lost count. I think it's seven people have been charged in relation to it. Several have been charged with murder. A couple... I think one has been charged with assault and I think two have been charged with violent disorder. So we'll leave Tristan Sherry. But Jason Hennessy died bravely. You have to say he died extremely bravely. He confronted Tristan Sherry. I think guards would be happy that Jason Hennessy Sr. was not the target. Jason, uh, Tristan Sherry and another man went into the Brown Steakhouse in Blanchetown on Christmas Eve. Tristan Sherry had a machine pistol. The other man had a pistol. The other man fled. Tristan Sherry was confronted by Jason Hennessy Sr. and he fired several shots at him. I think he shot him in the neck and he, he hit him a couple of times. It, there had been hopes that Mr. Hennessy would survive, but his condition did deteriorate and he died on the 4th of January in the Matter Hospital of illnesses sort of connected to the shooting. Uh, we'll put it that way. But he was buried last week, last Saturday, in Cardiff, his native Cardiff. And it was really was a, a, a spectacle. He was nicknamed the Hulk. He was involved in a business and it was called Hulk. So his funeral was, uh, his coffin was on a, a, a flatbed, a, a, a removal truck uh, there. So there was a lot of Garda activity around that and also Tristan Sherry's funeral in Finglas a couple of days earlier. Guards were very worried. There were associates of Jason Hennessy Sr. who are extremely volatile. Not not the biggest gang in the world, but it's their volatility that is causing guards serious concern. So I, I discovered two things after the, the funeral of Mr. Hennessy. Firstly, associates of Mr. Hennessy are determined to find out where Tristan, Tristan Sherry got the gun. 
the two, the two guns. They believe, uh, the associates of Hennessy believe that they could source it from the north. So they're fr- trying to find the person who sourced the weapons and trying to deal with him. But we also understand that they've also, they're also trying to source hand grenades for a series of attacks that they want to carry out. And that shows you how volatile the former associates of Mr. Hennessy are. We do, Healy and I did a story last week that uh, a female associate of Tristan Sherry, she's under a threat and her property is under threat and she's completely innocent, but the, the Hennessy associates are out for blood. So, as I say, they're a small outfit, but they're extremely volatile. So it's just something to watch and they are very concerned about this. Yeah, so they're concerned about reprisals, are they? Oh, very much so. As I said, um, Mr. Hennessy would have known people who were extremely volatile and they're well known for the volatility and their anger issues. So it is just one to watch on. Yeah, I suppose you had a very interesting story today about this Garda, the Garda's career on the line for driving a force vehicle to respond to an armed incident. This one takes a bit of explaining, I think, for our our listeners. Yes. So essentially, there are two, two levels of driving within the guards. One is CBD1 and one is CBD2. To cut uh, things short, if you see a Garda car with blue lights and the siren going, that's a CBD2 driver. So in other words, they are allowed to make emergency responses. Go through traffic lights, speed, break the speed limits, everything. CBD1, you're not allowed to do that. Now, this is where it gets tricky. This man is a Garda in Dublin, in the DMR Dublin region. He's under investigation for alleged disciplinary breaches over a series of incidents in the 30th of April in Dublin last year. It all started when he responded to what's called a category a category one incident, which is an armed incident. So he was responding to that. Now he went as a CBD one driver. He didn't have a siren on. He didn't have his lights on, but he drove to the scene. Now, GSOC has looked at the internal Garda rules and their conclusion is that as a CBD1 driver, you cannot respond to any incident. You can only go from A to B in the course of your duties and effectively be a normal driver. So their allegation or their belief is that this officer, they would contend he broke the guard of disciplinary rules by driving, responding within the law to that scene. So he's under investigation. I, I do know that they they they. they looked at it from a criminal perspective and the DPP declined to prosecute the guard. So what they're doing now is they're doing a disciplinary investigation. So it's either, there are two code areas, less serious and serious. And they've said it might be either less serious or serious. Less serious can mean two weeks pay, cut, a warning, a caution, stuff like that. Serious can be, you can be sacked or you can be asked to resign or you can be reduced in rank. Now, he has a guard, so he can't be reduced in rank. So it's pretty serious. Now, the way it works is GSOC does the investigation and sends its recommendations to the guards, so the Garda headquarters, Garda depot, and they do the disciplining. So the Garda commissioner, or it may be an assistant commissioner in charge of this, he, will, he or she will go, right, I've looked at this file, and in my view, there's not going to be any discipline. But they could also say, I've looked at this file and the recommendations and we're going to do him for these breaches. So it's a really, really serious situation for that guard. But I think even bigger, guards around the country are furious about this and they think they are extremely worried because they're going, right, if I respond to any incident, I don't have any cover. So one GRA rep had to give advice to his members saying, okay, if you're tasked to respond to an incident, it's a thing called command and control. So they're the officers who, who delegate guards to go to incidents. 
their advice was, you said it command and control, am I legally covered to respond to this? So in other words, it's covering their arses. And that's yeah. a really sad state of affairs, in my mind. Yeah, I suppose one of the worrying things for the, the guard involved here is he faces probably a pretty long wait before GSOC does its adjudication. How long is that going to take? It, 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 it's, it's how long is a piece of string? I do know that there are some, no, they're very, very serious. There are some GSOC investigations that are ongoing after five years. So can you imagine if you were, say there was a, an, an internal disciplinary thing and it lasted for five years and, I, and it was hanging over you? That's unacceptable. And that's one thing that is causing a lot of guards real angst. So this guard, it won't be five years. I, look, if you're asking me from experience, it would probably be a year. But even that, that's quite a long time for this to be hanging any over oh, hanging over any guard. And basically, he doesn't know, is he going to get fined? Is he going to be cautioned? Is he going to be told, you, did, you were fined, there's no problem? So it really is an intolerable position okay. for him. But generally within the guards, it really was an earthquake this last couple of days when this has emerged because guards are really, really worried that they're going to have faced the same problem if they, yeah. just say a guard has been attacked, what do you do? Do you sit there, do you respond or do you go, well, I'm not CBD2 qualified so I'll have to wait until somebody else comes along? Yeah. That's untenable. Yeah. And does this guard continue to work as normal or do guards yeah. continue to work as normally until GSOC adjudicates over it? Yeah, and you know, I put it this way, there are so many investigations that if every guard was suspended, there wouldn't be many guards about there's an awful lot of GSOC investigation. So yeah, no, this officer will continue working. But I found one interesting point after we, we, we did this story today. Somebody was telling me that in England, there were so many of these cases by their GSOC, I think it's the IPSO, uh, that there was legislation protecting police officers over there from discipline for driving their cars to, to incidents when they were whatever their CBD1 and CBD2 is. So the British are aware that here it hasn't happened. So you have these guards feeling extremely vulnerable and extremely exposed over this. Yeah. You, you had a, another nice story during the week and a, a nicer story in terms of slightly more positive. This crash attack hero, Leanne Flynn-Kyo, she's now out of hospital. This dates back to this uh, incident in Parnell Square East back in November, doesn't it? Yeah, 23rd of November. Listeners will be aware of it because there was a massive riot in Dublin, millions of euro of damage caused after it. But people sort of forget the incident that was the precursor for this. Now, it's not cause and effect. It's people started rioting after this. It's nothing to do with the victims or the alleged aggressor. So we know that one man is charged in relation to this. So we won't go down that road. But Leon Flynn Kyo was the crash worker. Now, there were uh, three children were allegedly stabbed in this and Miss Kyo was allegedly stabbed in this. Miss Kyo was in a really, really bad way in the Matter Hospital. She was in intensive care. She came out of intensive care at the about two weeks after the attack, so they started in November. But thankfully, it has now emerged that she left hospital just before Christmas. So it's a great Christmas present for, for her family and everybody else. But she really was a hero. It is fair to say that she put herself in harm's way to protect the children as young as four and five who were injured in that incident. So, look, we did a lot of sad news stories. I thought we might end on this positive. She's out of hospital and hopefully she can rebuild her life. Absolutely. Very nice. Uh, very nice story. OK, so will we call her for a day? Absolutely. Did you enjoy that? I did indeed. Thank you very much. Will you come back to us? I will, of course. Absolutely. You and I are on the late shift now. Please don't give me too many stories, boss. I won't. I won't. Ah, you're very good. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.